Dr. Kevin Milo is an emergency physician based in Western Canada. He's the founder of Physician Empowerment, an organization dedicated to transforming the lives of physicians through education in finance, wellness, practice management, and leadership. He is a serial entrepreneur with companies in real estate, finance, and education. We discuss what financial issues impact American and Canadian physicians differently, and then pivot into real estate from owning and managing your own property all the way to REITs, or real estate investment trusts. Why real estate is a popular investment vehicle for physicians, even though we're short on time, and what to do if we're stuck in analysis paralysis. You can find Kevin at Phys Empowerment, that's P-H-Y-S, empowerment.ca. Welcome to the Physician's Guide to Doctoring, a practical guide for practicing physicians. Dr. Bradley Block interviews experts in and out of medicine to find out everything we should have been learning while we were memorizing Krebs cycle. The ideas expressed on this podcast are those of the interviewer and interviewee and do not represent those of their respective employers. And now, here's Dr. Bradley Block. And now a word from this week's sponsor, Laurel Road. Buying a home like the one I grew up in has been my dream. We had this great yard where my brother and I would run under the sprinklers. We had a big kitchen table where I told my parents I got into med school. Now I'm a member of Laurel Road for Doctors, where I got a great rate on a physician mortgage and was eligible for no money down and no PMI, so I could make new memories in my own home. Laurel Road for Doctors. Banking insights and benefits uniquely designed for doctors. See laurelroad.com slash doctorhome for full terms and conditions. Laurel Road is a brand of KeyBank NA and Equal Housing Lender. NMLS 399797. Dr. Kevin Milo, thanks very much for coming on the podcast. Brad, I am so glad to be here. Very, very excited uh, to be joining you today. We're going to be talking about finance, and then we're going to go pivot to real estate, which is really the two are intertwined. Um, but to start off, since you're a Canadian physician, what I'd like to hear is, because we have predominantly American listeners, we got uh, our fair our fair share of Canadian listeners as well, but uh, are there any financial issues that affect that you think affect Canadians and American physicians differently? Yeah, so um, this is probably one of the biggest contrasts I noticed between Canadian and American healthcare. Right, um, the vast majority of Canadian healthcare is not for profit. The vast majority of Canadian physicians are remunerated directly by provincial, that would be the equivalent of state governments. Um, pay directly into physicians' bank accounts uh, for services delivered. And most of us are what we call fee-for-service in Canada. So whether it's a surgery or procedural work or a patient visit, um, there's a certain amount we bill um, under each specialty. And this is decided by governments locally. Other Canadian physicians are salaried. Uh, many are in academic centres where there's kind of a salaried model tied to research and administrative work as well. Uh, but the vast, vast majority of us are community-based um, physicians who receive remuneration directly from government. So that's probably a big contrast for a lot of American uh, physicians. And um, the there are Canadian physicians who are exclusively in private practice, uh, but much fewer and far between because um, most provincial governments have set up a, a scenario where Canadian physicians who bill privately are e excluded from billing publicly for up to 12 months. So it makes it really, really difficult for physicians to jump between both systems um, and bill. And what, it, yeah, so I, I see that look on your face, Brad, and you're kind of going, well, why is that? Um, yeah. The primary reason is that uh, we try to maintain talent in the public system 
And so the concern in Canada has always been that if we introduce uh, parallel private healthcare, that all the brightest nurses, doctors, surgeons are going to migrate into this private system that presumably should pay more. So it's, uh, it's remarkable because Canadians, as the public, um, are very, very passionate about maintaining public health care. And the vast majority of Canadian physicians, myself included, are deeply passionate about maintaining public health care because it is truly a wonderful thing to be able to care for your patient and not worry about whether she or he can pay for it and not worrying about the cost and making referrals to whomever you feel is most appropriate to see the patient. But there are some very real challenges to the system. Limited resources being one of them, access to consultants and specialists, diagnostic imaging, wait times. There are a lot of very significant issues that we face in Canada, and I'm not going to go with them in any great length, but that is one of the biggest ones. Certainly for Canadian physicians, by and large, we really like the system in terms of there is no haggling with HMOs or insurance companies or hospitals or any of that kind of bureaucracy, right? Um, you never have to have a discussion with your patients about the cost of things unless it's what we call an uninsured service. So provincial, state governments will delist certain services that they do not feel are necessarily medically relevant. Um, and so patients have to private pay for some of these things. But these are very few and far between, and it's nothing major. Isn't it like so, physical therapy? Uh, pardon me? Isn't physical therapy considered Yeah, one there's going to be things like that. Yeah. Um, but a lot of people still have private coverage through employers for a lot of this sort of thing. And we do have fairly generous drug coverage, depending on where you're at in Canada and, and who, who you, you're insured by. So it isn't universal. I mean, we don't have dental. There isn't universal drug coverage and things like that. But by and large, the social safety net in Canada, when it comes to healthcare, is extremely robust and extremely generous. Whether that is sustainable or not, I do not have the answer, right? But I can tell you that the vast majority of Canadian doctors and patients are committed to seeing public health care succeed in Canada, but it faces some very, very real challenges, as I mentioned, things that I'm not going to get to at any great length. So there's a certain simplicity to practice in Canada with regards to finances, but, but there are some very, very real challenges for Canadian physicians because Canada... Don't ask me why. <laughs> Again, much bigger discussion we're going to get into has an extremely high cost of living, particularly in major cities like Toronto and Vancouver, which means a Canadian, a physician in Northern Ontario might pay less than half an overhead compared to a physician in downtown Toronto, just let's say four or 500 kilometers, four or 500 miles south, right? And they're all on the same remuneration schedule. Right. So, you know, you know, and so, so the problem is, is like the answer for many Canadian physicians is become more efficient, see more patients, work longer hours, delay retirements. Well, that's not healthy. I mean, we were just talking about that in the episode you recorded for me, Brad, you know, about self-care. Canadian physicians are constantly under that pressure because there is not a way to automatically increase fees to match the cost of living, to match overhead. And the latest issue is rapidly rising prices, right? Like inflation. That's the big issue this year. So I would guess that you have many physicians that want to live in Vancouver and Toronto and not many that want to live on like Prince Edward Island, right? Exactly. So the way that you can attract people to 
live in the outer reaches is to pay them better. And the way that you don't have a completely saturated market in these major cities where everyone wants to live is make it a little harder. So it seems like that would help to balance things out. There, there are those mechanisms, right? But in the end, like there's a certain ceiling on how much a family doctor in downtown Toronto or downtown Vancouver can bill. And she or he has got to pay overhead out of that because the government does not pay your overhead. You are still in private practice, right? So you've got to make it work. And that's where it can get really, really difficult. And we have clients, I, I should add, I'm the founder of a, a national organization called Physician Empowerment, where we provide financial education to Canadian doctors. We actually have American physicians that join us as well for our conferences. But this is one of the big issues, right? Is that squeeze between what you can realistically bill in a day, month, or year versus the overhead that you have to pay in order to maintain your practice. I mean, you know, whether that's office space, equipment and supplies and administrative staff, right? So it, it ends up pushing a lot of physicians into some form of private medicine, whether that's aesthetics or uninsured services. Uh, physicians will often, often um, do something that is higher remuneration that will help supplement, right? And this is, again, one of the challenges to the system, right? Because, you know, somebody who's spending a day a week you know, in, in private pay medicine isn't, isn't working in the public system that, that we, that day. Right. So this is what we help physicians try to bridge through physician empowerment, because we provide financial education that help, you know, we teach them how to, you know, do advanced tax planning. We teach people how to invest. We're going to talk about real estate later today and why it's been so transformative in many, many Canadian physicians lives. And get out of the rat race, right? So you can get back to enjoying your patients, back to focusing on patient care and not worried, not stressed out about billing, about overhead, about volumes, right? And that's that's really the dream of physician empowerment is to create financial security for physicians. So we just get back to patient care and not worrying about some of the financial struggles that we face. So let's let's take that as an opportunity to pivot into the real estate discussion. Sure. So we've got a lot of big physicians with big followings out there because they've gotten into real estate, right? The semi-retired MD and passive income MD and, you know, not going to plug any more of them. Um, Why is it that physicians are so attracted to real estate? What's the synergy here? Yeah, I mean, I think for a lot of physicians, it, it comes down to very high incomes, right? I mean, the vast majority of physicians are in a top 1% income category. Um, And for those that are not spending excessively relative to their income in, um, uh, you know, personal expenditures, vacations, housing, vehicles, then there's a lot of residual income. Many Canadian physicians in the United States and Canada are incorporated So you have residual income. Now, I don't know all the ins and outs of a 401k or a Roth, but in Canada, we have something parallel called RSPs, which is a certain amount of tax-deferred savings that we can put towards retirement, which ultimately many physicians fill that up very, very quickly, right? And so, you know, physicians start realizing that they've got more money than they can place in registered funds right? Or registered accounts, I should say. And as a result of that, they start looking at other opportunities. I think one of the big ones too, is that physicians naturally 
look to real estate when they look at their own practices, right? You know, because for physicians that are paying thousands of dollars a month in a lease for their office space, at some point, I think a lot of us, I don't know about yourself, Brad, look around and go, why don't I own this building, right? And so that's the first step into real estate for a lot of physicians is simply owning the place that we practice out of or owning a part of the place that we practice out of. So that that becomes a parallel source of wealth creation in and above what we're billing directly, right? Because that overhead's got to be paid, um, whether we're leasing or whether we own, own the premises. So that's one of the first ones um, that we come to. There's also the side to this that there's a business here, right? And that's kind of an extension of the notion of real estate, right? That you can own your own practice rather than just being an associate. You can be a partner in your own practice. But the big, big one, I mean, you know, I am a very strong believer in real estate. Real estate has been personally transformative in my life because I bought a lot and it frankly provided me with a sense of financial security. I'm not where I want to be, but I can see I'm getting there, right? Because real estate grows very powerfully in three ways. And I'm not going to go at length about this. We teach it at Physician Empowerment. We have an entire real estate course for anyone that's interested. But the bottom line is this, is that you get to borrow money to acquire, let's say, a million-dollar rental property. And you only use $200,000 of your own money to acquire that. And then you put a tenant into the premises, whether it's a commercial building, whether it's you know residential, whatever have you. And over the course of your ownership, 20, 25 years, somebody else has paid that mortgage, paid the other 800,000. And then presumably, if you bought in the right market, and almost every market is the right market, it goes up by three to 6% a year, right? So that property can become worth a lot in 25 years. And all it was was your $200,000 in seed money to start with. Right, so very, very powerful. And that doesn't include the positive cash flow that might come off of it, right? So where I'm from, um, Western Canada, we're kind of, you know, low cost area, not dissimilar from Texas, resource-based economy. You still buy homes for $450,000 American, right? Or Canadian, right? Very affordable, probably 400,000 US, 450 or 500,000 Canadian, somewhere around there, right? And, and, you know, you put a tenant, let's say, this is a very simple example, put a tenant in there for 25 years, and that tenant is paid off the whole value of the place, right? And it's worth a million in 25 years. And again, all it was, was your 80,000, 100,000 to start. So this is why real estate is so, so powerful. And there are many, many tax advantages in Canada, and even more in the United States in terms of owning real estate, where you use not post personal tax ink dollars, but you use pre-tax dollars, right? You use residual corporate income, right? So rather than pulling that money out for the down payment out of your corporation and paying massive personal tax on it, you keep the money in, you pay corporate tax, you lend to a holding corporation that you own and you invest, right? And physicians all across Canada are doing this. Physicians all across the United States are doing this. And it's just so, so powerful. The other major reason why, can, why physicians do so well in real estate when they want to is that we're very credit worthy, right? We have steady incomes, high incomes. We're considered to be a very safe bet when it comes to lending. So banks are there to support us. Now, I'm not advising people to go out and get millions of dollars of debt here. That is not what I'm saying. 
I'm simply you saying you don't want to over leverage yourself because you're not I mean, you're talking about these things, but these carry these carry significant risk. Yeah, you're using someone else's money. You're leveraging someone else's money to 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 make more money. But if you yeah. lose someone else's money, you're going to have to pay all that back. So these yeah. things carry. You know, that's a but, lot. But of let risk. me let me put it this way. Um, I'm going to be blunt here. There are many doctors north and south of the border who have an income somewhere around 500,000 gross and they turn around and they go buy a $2 million home. When you have a $2 million home, it comes down to you going into work every day to pay that mortgage, right? There's a lot of risk to that. I, I don't know what your job looks like if you, if you injure your hands, Brad, but if I injure mine, I'm not working for weeks, right? And I'm not paid for weeks, right? And so, you know, we don't think about that when we think about our personal residences and, and when Canadian American physicians load up on personal mortgages. But I can tell you $2 million in investment real estate where you have somewhere between four to 10 other incomes paying into that if you bought a small low rise apartment building, that's a lot more peace of mind. That's not on you. That's on five other people, 10 other people before it comes down the line to you to pay, right? So again, this is where we have to get a little bit comfortable with risk management in real estate and not freaking out that, yeah, you might be on the hook for a million dollars in borrowed money, but it's a tax write-off. You have other people paying that mortgage and you leave some cushion. I, I tell you, I'd rather have a million dollars in rental real estate than a million dollars in mortgage any day. Appreciate any it. Day. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep pushing back though, because- Push. As as we talked about when when you were interviewing me, right? We're often you know seeing tons of patients in a single day. At the end of the day, we're exhausted, so we might be relative to the average person high on income, but we're also short on time, right? Love and at it. the end of the day, all of those decisions lead us to decision fatigue. So at the end of the day, Love we're really. It. We're not interested in making more decisions. So now Love it, we're Brad. fine. We've got the money, but we don't have the time. We don't have the capacity. So real estate sounds like, like, yeah, just buy an apartment. Oh, no, no, I agree. I agree. So many decisions need to be made. So we're going to cut into the little free time that we have to then work more. I, I'm not, I totally I'm not hearing let, it. Let me share my war story. And I, I've already podcasted on this one. I was interviewed on this. This is kind of one of my classics that I'm known for. Lumbar puncture night, Brad. Let me tell you about lumbar puncture night and why tell you're Tell me about lumbar right puncture night, Kevin. On, on decision fatigue. So I remember there, when, I, when I bought my first doors, and I, I have quite a, I have a reasonable number of, of real estate, you know, rental properties in my own personal portfolio. And um, I remember I just came off a run of like 10 shifts, 10 or 12 shifts. And I just finished my last night shift and I was headed off for a flight. And for whatever reason, that night shift was incredibly busy and I needed to do four lumbar punctures that night. Oh my goodness, long night. Um, and for those of you that do them, it can be somewhat stress inducing and I have no anesthesia backup, no neurology backup. So I really got to nail those myself. Bottom line is, it was a night of decision fatigue. And as I'm preparing to go to the airport from the hospital and hop that flight, one of my tenants phones me about water leaking from the ceiling. And I can tell you, that is the last thing I wanted to hear. 
right? And that is only one out of many, many war stories that I have with direct ownership of real estate. So Brad, you are absolutely right. Um, physicians need to be very, very mindful of what they're stepping into when they buy real estate directly, when we do what's called direct ownership. And that's one of the commoner, more commonly recognized ways that Canadian physicians or that North American physicians are going to know about real estate. And they're going to say, I'm not interested in that. Don't, don't even talk to me about that. I'm not plunging toilets. I'm not getting phone calls at three in the morning about things breaking down. I can't deal with that. Number one, you can hire great property management, which I have done. But number two, go somewhere else with your real estate dollars. Go into private equity. So I'm finally grown up. I do not buy my own doors anymore. I invest in private equity. That is a group of us partner with an experienced, trustworthy developer, and we acquire properties under a limited partnership model, which means I hand over my check. I have done my due diligence. I've looked the building over. I've looked the financials over, but I hand over a check to the developer in a limited partnership agreement where we acquire the building and the developer refurbishes it and manages it and cash flows it. And here are the advantages. Number one, I am not getting any phone calls because I'm not even allowed to under a limited partnership agreement. I'm not allowed to be involved in the decision-making and the running of that project. Number two, I am not on the hook for the loans. The developer is. Is the developer getting paid? You bet. Is she or he making more money than me? You bet. But I am still making good money without the headaches. And this is the sweet spot. I am not, and again, I'm not here to tell you every single LP you look at is going to be great. There are many, many ways to lose money in these, right? There are many charlatans that operate in the real estate industry. And we teach you how to watch out for those because they're itching to get their hands on accredited investors who hand over quarter million dollar checks or hundred thousand dollar checks and can run away from that money. And one of my mentors, who's a very successful family physician, who's a developer himself has executed $100 million in new developments, says that the worst charlatans are the ones that come fully credentialed, law degrees, accountants, you know, um, certified financial planners, be very, very careful, right? But that being said, when you find somebody you can trust, and you find something you understand, you've done a little bit of reading around it, investing becomes an absolute pleasure. And it becomes very, very exciting. Because you get to put your money in a place that generates meaningful returns. Real estate, and again, I'm not going to go into the numbers, Brad, in any big length here, by and large does a 15% annualized return, right? And when you go into like more sophisticated deals, you can be north of 20 annualized. That's very powerful. And especially under the high inflation environment that we're seeing and the decline in the stock market, our, we've gotten so much interest from people wanting to know more about real estate investing since things changed in the markets, right? And since people realized that holding cash is a disaster that's costing them 10% a year. So again, real estate, nothing is perfect. It's like, you know, investing in the public markets, there's risk. You have to accept it. You can, if you want zero risk, put your money under a mattress and watch it shrink under inflation. So it's about finding that thing, that, that amount of risk you can tolerate and we call it the pillow test. When you put your head on your pillow at night and go to sleep and feel better about your future, then you made the right investment. 
And that's one of the key criteria I have myself personally before I invest in a real estate deal is, is this adding to my personal well-being so that I can go into work, not worry about money, but instead just be there and be happy. So for, for those listeners that are interested in learning more about multifamily real estate, there was an episode, one of my first episodes, I think, with Dr. Cherry Chen. So you can look look that up where we talk, the entire episode is about exactly what Kevin was just talking about with multifamily uh, commercial real estate investing. So so you can either own the individual property yourself, right? You can be part of a syndication where you your own part of the property, but someone else is managing really everything about it. But let's say you want to mitigate your risk even further. So rather than investing in a singular building, you want to invest in like a fund of buildings. Love that. Love that. Yes. So there are different ways to do that. And I know where you're going with this one, Brad. Let me, we'll, we'll go one step before we get to REITs and that is real estate funds. Okay. So these are private funds, usually only accessible by accredited investors. That's a term we use in Canada. I don't know if that's the same term is the state, yeah. but by, by and large, these are high net, high income, high net worth, high income individuals who are eligible to invest in what are considered to be riskier categories of um, assets. And a real estate fund is often privately run and more or less it's a private REIT where your money is pooled with other people's money. And rather than you picking and choosing the individual projects you want to bite on, it's handled by professionals who spread the risk across multiple projects and yet intimately still know it. Again, not without risk, but can be very good. The returns can be lower and there's a lending side to this. So we call them mix mortgage investment corporations, which again are essentially using your money to become the bank and lend into real estate projects, developers, building loans, rehabilitation loans, whatever have you, refis, and you get a part of that interest coming back to you, right? So there is a lot of good opportunities in private real estate funds. But again, you have to find people you can trust. You have to be able to look at their record. You have to understand some of the business model and where they're putting your money. Um, because again, these people are not like us. Let me be very clear on that. There is not a fiduciary relationship in the finance industry like we have with our patients. We have an obligation to serve our patients in the best interest, in the best way that we can, right? Finance industry does not operate that way. So we need to be very mindful and not go into this with rose-colored glasses. But that's one place. And then, yeah, if you want to go to the lowest risk thing, you're talking about a publicly traded REIT. Okay, real estate uh, investment trust. And these, again, have the same reporting requirements as any other public company. And by law, they have to distribute 90% of profits to shareholders. There, there's plenty to read about with publicly traded REITs and why they may not be that good. There can be massive conflicts of interest, overcompensation, and they can be poorly run. They can be um, apathetic uh, and on top of it, there are share dilutions, which nobody likes share dilutions. So again, that's just an overview of real estate. I own REITs, by the way, like I invest in them. I am very comfortable with that. That's where I put some of my uh, registered money. But by and large, I understand their limitations. The closer you are to the project, the more you're going to eat. 
is the general rule. I mean, it is no different than publicly traded equities. The people that the really risk, made the their more money, reward. Yeah. the people that made the really made their money off of Google and Facebook were there at the ground in the early days, not the last of us that buy it on the open market, right? Even the IPOs, we don't get. So this is why I, you know, again, I, I'm not totally against, you know, investing in the public market. I have a little bit of public money, but my bias is definitely towards real estate because it's been so transformative in my life, Brad. I'm just happier and more optimistic about my future simply because I've invested in real estate. So what would you say to a physician who is stuck in analysis paralysis, right? They don't know what to buy. They don't know where to start. Do I look for an apartment? That just doesn't seem so exciting to me. How about apartment buildings? That doesn't really seem that exciting to me either. You really didn't sell REITs to us very well there. So yeah. that doesn't seem so exciting. Yeah. So I don't really know where to, what to do and yeah. where to I begin. Mean, this right? is again, I-, I mean, one of the first things you alluded to is Real estate is boring. And guess what? I happen to love boring because I work in a stressful job and I kind of like boring when it comes to my money. You know, I enjoy the returns on real estate in very unsexy classes of it because you can, you can go be very speculative. You can buy land speculatively. You can invest in industrial, higher end commercial where the margins and the returns might be 30% annualized. Um, big shiny buildings that are very expensive. Sure, there are lots of those kinds of opportunities around, but I can assure you that the ones that are kind of the sweet spot are the ones that are are income-based, right? So you buy it, it generates income, the income covers all the costs and there's something left for you at the end and that the property is gradually appreciating and that the mortgage is being paid down. It is as simple as that, is cash flow appreciation and paying down the mortgage. Um, and whether you do that through multifamily or through stable commercial, you know, um, office, medical, even retail, again, be careful with the retail, um, and, um, and simply going with the numbers rather than, um, rather than just what is shiny, what is status. I can, yeah. does, I can it cash you, flow? does it cash yeah, flow? I can and assure does it you cash that, flow? Yeah. um, yeah, that uh, there's much, much more money to be made playing it safe rather than chase something shiny or status driven. The other thing I would say is find a way to dip your toes into it. Most private equity is looking for a $250,000 check or more, but there are going to be opportunities out there for as low as fifty dollars to $100,000. This last deal that I was involved in, we were taking checks as small as $50,000. And I encourage physicians, you know, again, and let me be blunt here. And I, this is what I'm kind of known for is, you know, you go out there and you buy that brand new Beamer, right? $75,000 car. You know where that's going in 20 years. That value is going at nothing. And in high 20 tax- 20 years, if it lasts yeah, that long, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And in high tax Canada, if you want a $75,000 car at the end of your calendar year, you had to earn about 150000 for that because you had to pay massive personal tax. Are you, yeah, you're like, what? Yeah, right. Canada can be quite high tax in certain jurisdictions. So what if you, what if you said, okay, I have $150,000 pre-tax and maybe I'll just keep driving the old BMW and go and put a little bit of money into real estate and see what it does. Because that might go the opposite direction and 10% very conservatively over 20 years is a massive spread versus 
a depreciating vehicle going to zero over 20 years. Right. What so you're saying is invest rather than spend, but but a lot of the decision is not that, right? A lot of the decision is, well, do am I going to spend it or I'm going to invest it? It is where I'm going to invest it. And so do I just keep putting it in the market? Because as the market's going down, right, that's actually a good time to buy when the market's sure. going up is, uh, is, is no, not. No, no, I get that, buy, so. right? And in the end, I mean, it's going to take a bit of courage. It's going to take a bit of reading. So I'd encourage people to go out there and get resources on real estate. So you understand the fundamentals. You understand what you're looking at. Find an area you want to focus on. So I do, you know, single family homes and multifamily because I understand it most easily rather than jumping on that private surgical facility that you want to put up and, and throw money in. And again, find that comfort level. Um, there is, if you're waiting to know everything, if you're waiting for zero risk, you will never do it. There is always going to be risk to any kind of investing. And we have to overcome that, I think, which is really important, you know, and put it into some context. The average physician is probably going to bill about $15 million through their PC, uh, is going to bill $15 million to their PC. It's not unreasonable to put a little bit into real estate and see. But again, you're not blindly handing over checks here. Get a good lawyer get a good accountant, find people you can trust, talk to your network, right? You've prob most of us probably have a colleague who's been doing it. Find out what they're doing, find out what's worked for them, take them out for a meal and get some wisdom and some experience from them. Don't, you do not have to do this on your own. And that's, that was one of the things that excited me the most about this latest deal that I joined is it's private equity, it's a limited partnership, but I joined 20 other doctors. Yeah. Right. I think that's, I like that the best. Find a mentor, find, find someone mentor. who's doing it and uh, yeah, decide that you're going to follow them along and then you can figure out what it was that you liked or didn't like about exactly. that deal. And then you, exactly. and then you it's go no different than developing our medical practices. Yeah. And I'd encourage you just to look at it, right. You know, just take a look at it because like I said, I'm not trying to sell real estate as the end all be all here, but it's been transformative in my life. I'm just happier for having owned it. The markets go for a giant slide. I shrug. Inflation goes through the roof. I shrug. Not only do you shrug, you do better. Yes. When inflation goes up. Real estate is a place to have your money. So one, one last question, right? There are a lot of physicians out there in the, in the, in the personal finance space, right? Tons yep. of bloggers and podcasters and yep. on all sorts of social media. Is there anything you've seen out there? cringeworthy that you just want to push against Ooh. anything that you're seeing in the physician finance space that other people have said, I don't want you to call out anyone in particular. We're not throwing anyone to the bus, but where you would say, you know what? I saw this thing. Maybe you saw it yeah. once, maybe multiple times. And I, I have to say, I have to disagree with it. So yeah. just find so something you I want got, to push I, up against. I got a few, I got a few and let me just run through my rants here. Day trading. Oh, scares the heck out of me. I have a business partner who's a family physician, great at trading, will not call himself a day trader um, and doesn't attempt it. But I see a lot of physicians who will even buy and sell while they're at work, right? Between patients. And I just cringe, not good for clinical work and even worse for, um, 
investing. And number two is, to add to that is, why would you create a second job for yourself? You alluded to this earlier, Brad, about, you know, I don't want to, I don't want a bunch of doors if I'm going to be getting calls at three in the morning. Do you really want your phone going off with stock prices about buying and selling, right? When you're trying to get through a busy enough day as it is and trying to have some time for family and for self. So number one, this day trading model, I don't, I don't think it works. And I don't think ultra high net worth individuals, non-physicians do this. They hire it out. Number two, blindly buying the markets. I know I've heard that. I know the math. I know what directions the markets go. They trend upward. I get that. But again, there are physicians that have been cleaned out right before retirement on you know a mid-term, mid-range stock slide where it forces them to delay retirements. And even if they get back to where they were and recover, is that really what you wanted to do? Delay retirement by three years? You know, If you're dealing with health problems? My view on financial security is that you should have money so that if something happens in your life with a loved one, with yourself personally, professionally, and you're like, that's it, I'm done, I'm out, you should be able to walk. That's real power. That's real wealth. To be able to retire when you want, how you want, on your own terms. So that's the next observation I'd have uh, about that. And then lastly, there are no get-rich-quick schemes here. You know, everybody chases the latest IPO, the shiniest stocks, the shiniest real estate investment, it doesn't work that way. You need to put money in every year. Do something. Don't do nothing. And then lastly, lastly, and sorry, I go on and on about this because I spend a lot of time unteaching bad habits. Um, and I've been doing this for years. So here's another one is house. Everybody says the house is a great investment. You go buy a $2 million home, you're going to have a $20,000 property tax bill in most Canadian cities, $20,000. And to pay that $20,000 property tax bill, you had to earn 40. Is that really worth it? Uh, so, I'm in New York. Again, I, so that's probably, if you have a $2 million house, it's probably a $40,000 tax bill. That is exactly it. It's 40,000 you had to earn. That's not 22%. going anywhere. Yeah. Every year that bill just shows up on your doorstep and you got to pay it. Right. And so again, what is your time worth? My wisdom here is know your hourly rate and don't work to pay into black holes, whether it's vehicle payments, mortgage you can't afford, property taxes, everything. Right. Focus on buying assets is as simple as that. Whether you're buying the markets, whether you're buying real estate, geez, whether you're buying gold and sticking it under your mattress, focus on assets and that will take you further than chasing the latest get rich quick scheme while money gets blown out the back door on too much house. Can I be blunt? I just was. Yeah. All right. Thank you so much for your time, Dr. Kevin Milo. So where uh, physician empowerment, where can we find you online on LinkedIn, on Twitter? Yeah, where do we find look you? us up. I'm on LinkedIn. We're all, you know, you can, you can Google us, but it's physempowerment.ca. And again, I encourage people to check us out. The teaching we do is universal. Whether you're an American physician or Canadian physician, the teaching is largely universal and it is so powerful. Um, that's what keeps me going is because I know I'm making an impact in people's lives. I'm certainly made an impact in my own life um, by going down this journey. And I, I'm sure you can relate to your, your own uh, educational journey as well, Brad. 
Absolutely. So fizzempowerment.ca, Dr. Kevin Milo, this is M-A-I-L-O. Thank you so much for your time. Look me up. I love hearing from everybody. Text me, message me. I love it, love it, love it. Reach out to me. That was Dr. Bradley Block at the Physician's Guide to Doctoring. He can be found at physiciansguidetodoctoring.com or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have a question for a previous guest or have an idea for a future episode, send a comment on the webpage. Also, please be sure to leave a five-star review on your preferred podcast platform. We'll see you next time on the Physician's Guide to Doctoring.